So I was, I was taught a very, very important lesson when I was younger, and that is the world isn't fair and everything's going to be hard and it's going to be especially hard for you. It's just how you react to it is the only option that you have. So is your, is your reaction going to be, oh, woe is me, this is hard, or are you going to try and find the positive in all the solution or are you going to try and find the solution in all that solution? I think just having a solutions-oriented mindset with the expectation that everything's going to be shit allows you to then think everything's awesome because most often than not, things are harder than you expect it to be. Things are more difficult and things are going to be unfair and, and life is going to come at you whether you expect it or not. Welcome back to Austinpreneur for a conversation with Jacqueline Samira, the CEO and founder of Howdy, interviewed by our CEO and founder at Capital Factory, Joshua Bayer. Before founding Howdy, Jacqueline cut her teeth at Own Local and Shipwell, which were two ventures built on the 16th floor at Capital Factory here in Austin. Today at Howdy, which did Y Combinator and is Capital Factory portfolio company, Jacqueline is building international teams to support venture-backed startups, companies that are growing fast and need help keeping up. Her savvy approach to business, sales, and talent management will have you jotting notes the whole time. We recorded the episode live for an audience of students at the University of Texas taking Josh's Longhorn Startup class. Listen all the way through to hear some sharp questions asked by the students at the end. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Austinpreneur. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on this show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Please, everyone, give a round of applause for Jacqueline. Welcome her join us. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Jacqueline's got a super interesting story, and it's one that weaves in and out of Capital Factory, which I love. And so that's part of what makes it extra special to have her here. Uh, Howdy. Also, one of my favorite sayings is like the name of her company. I start all my emails with Howdy and her your emails howdy.com i probably should get an honorary email address we may have to talk about that at some point josh at quityourjob.com is pretty good yeah. but josh at howdy.com would be pretty good too but but so but jacqueline tell us tell us i want you let's i met you when you were first co-working here as one of the first co-workers so let's rewind back there what were you doing but how did you end up here <laughs> here in the seat in this moment in capital well just a capital factory how did you how did you end up here then? How did I well actually my story starts when I was your guys' age. I graduated university in 2008 and I was getting my degree in economics. And what ended up happening, if you guys recall, there was the huge housing recession that imploded the banks, imploded a lot of opportunities, and my whole goal like when right now, like the hot thing to do is to get into tech, I think, right? There's like lots of cool things, tech, AI, but like the very cool thing to do when I was your age was to get into iBanking and was to go and do that whole Wolf of Wall Street thing. And so that was my dream. And that's what I was gearing up to do when I graduated. And I couldn't get a job to save my life at all. I was on the honors roll. I did, I did all the things. I checked all the boxes. And I spent 19 months after college applying for jobs. And I ended up getting nothing. And I went to this area of like huge depression and was very, very lucky to just get a random sales job. And this job was in New York City. And I did that because I knew that when the economy turned around, at least I will be at the financial center of the world. So at least be there so I can meet people and network and finally work my way in. Fast forward a couple years, things weren't looking better. And I just realized I had a knack for sales, for people, for meeting with people. My company at the time relocated me to Austin, Texas. And I had basically given up on all my dreams. And I was like, you know what, that's it. Done with this whole like investment banking journey. I'm lost. 
I'm in my early, I'm in my mid to late 20s. I wind up in Austin, Texas in 2011, and I see this like emerging, well, it wasn't emerging, it was already big. It was this like booming tech scene that was happening here that I thought was only happening in the Bay Area. And to give you some more background, my mom's a computer engineer, so I grew up with obviously foundational knowledge and understanding of computer, computer science. I never went into it, obviously. But then I started to see the scene bigger. And obviously, Josh and Capital Factory, I would go to a couple events here. And I remember thinking to myself, like, gosh, like, how do I marry my sales acumen into the world of technology? Again, this was also like... I thought you were going somewhere else for a second there. But <laughs> and and I, just, I just started networking. I started meeting people. I started coming to events here. And sure enough, there was a job that opened at a company here at Capital Factory. That's a Capital Factory company owned local. They were also a YC company. And I ended up being hired as their VP of sales. Of course, I had worked really hard in sales to get to that point to be able to be hired. And then I, I moved into it. And that was my first stint at Capital Factory. And then I was there for a couple of years. We were doing $4 million in revenue when I started the, with the company, got it up to $12 million. Then there was another company that had gone through the Capital Factory Accelerator program called Shipwell. And they had a mentor that they... So Greg Price, who's the founder of Shipwell, met a mentor through Capital Factory, who was also a YC founder, that ended up joining as a co-founder. And when they were starting Shipwell, again they knew my CEO at the time and they were looking for like a sales leader. And so I joined that team on the ground floor when they were just getting started back in Capital Factory again and um, took them through. We raised a 2 million series seed, then a 10 million series A, and then I left that company to start Howdy. So. Wow. Well, it's funny, not every story interweaves so much with Capital Factory, <laughs> but everybody's stories interweave with a lot of different people. And, and yeah, I'm sure you'll see that as a trend in, as you hear the different people that come up and speak here over the course of the semester. And, and just the way that, that you, you were here working with one of the companies, part of how they knew her is because being in a co-working space, being surrounded by other entrepreneurs, you see the other companies and who are the hustlers? Who's here working late? Who's here getting stuff done? Which companies are doing really well? Who are the people that lead those, right? And those either become the people you go ask for advice or the people you go try to hire to go join your, your, your company. And, and we see that happen all the time. And, and so, so yeah, so it was, it's, it's great to have seen you at multiple different companies. I guess it's now three that we've, yeah. that we've worked with you at. So as you went to go start, you, you, you were part of, say, at this point now, at least two high-growth companies in tech startups, Own Local and Shipwell, both really interesting companies. Own Local was in the newspaper industry. The newspaper industry, no one, it's not news to anybody that the newspaper industry is not really headed in the best it, 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 it has gone through some tough times. Um, so that business did really well for a while and then really seemed to get off its growth pattern. And then Shipwell was a, a, a rocket ship the whole time that you were there, um, it, and it seemed from my perspective, and, and has continued to, to do that. Um, and so but in both times, you got to be part of a bunch of different teams and gained kind of different experiences. How did that, what did you pit, take away from that as you were starting Howdy? What, what, what were you thinking either from, from own local or from Shipwell? Oh, I'm definitely going to go do it like they did it, or, oh, I'm definitely not going to go do it like they did it. Yeah, so I think my road to entrepreneurship might be very different from a lot of people's traditional road to entrepreneurship. I always had that desire to do it, but I never had the confidence. And so I honestly believed that I was just going to be like a really great right-hand man or right-hand woman or whatever to the CEO. And the confidence that I had from all of my experiences was... I was a part of several very successful companies and every single company was ran differently and not necessarily was it great. There was like very, uh, there was great examples, but there were also really bad examples. And I remember when I was observing the good examples and the bad examples, I learned almost more from the bad examples than I did from the good examples because it taught me so many people can be successful with an idea 
even if they're not perfect. And for some reason, I always had it in my mind that you had to be the smartest, you had to work the hardest, you had, you had to be the best at all of these things in order to achieve the A or success or whatever you want to call it. And it's like you can still achieve success even by making wrong moves or bad decisions. And I think it was just the lifelong experience of seeing success even with bad decisions that gave me the confidence to be like, shoot, if all of these examples lead to this, why can't I try it myself? Look at our two candidates for president. Those are the two best, <laughs> the two best people that we can put forward. That's exactly. a good, good example of what, yeah. yeah, it's amazing. I think the younger we are, the more we look up to people in a more idolized version of what they are. And then when you're there sitting side by side, you're like, oh, you're just a normal person just like me. Hmm, what are the differences? The fact that you tried and I have yet to try? That was a huge takeaway that I had is, oh, I just need to try. Like, why, why not me? Why not me was the thing that I kept going back to. All right, so, so every, everyone got up here and gave their pitches. What's the howdy elevator pitch? You want the howdy elevator pitch or the howdy pitch? I mean, the, 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 the elevator pitch, the quick pitch. <laughs> the quick pitch. They had to do the quick pitch. Okay, I'll do the, I'll do the quick pitch. Howdy helps companies hire software developers in LATAM. In LATAM, Latin America. Latin America, that's correct. Howdy.com. Howdy.com. If you want to hire developers in Latin America. Yeah. Okay. If you, why, why would you want to hire America, uh, developers in Latin America? So I, one of our problems, can I give you my problem? Yeah. Can I give you guys my problem? So I had all these fast growth companies that I was a part of, and I had revenue goals that I had to hit regardless of what other departments were doing. And what ended up happening 2015, 2016, is there was like a, I mean, granted, it exploded in 2020, but in 2015, 2016, there was a huge influx of capital coming to Austin specifically. More VC firms were moving here, more people were moving here, more businesses from California were coming here. And it was very hard if you were a startup or if you were like on the ground floor to build your tech team and compete with FANG companies when they were giving $500,000 compensation packages. And so for me, I'm like, well, gosh, like, there's smart people all over the world. This is like a really, really silly problem to have rather than all of these small companies trying to pay $500,000 for top talent. Why don't we just expand the talent pool? And then also conversely, from like a social component, elevate people that are in third world countries that maybe need more access to opportunities. So can we create a bridge to give them opportunities? And so that was like the, I was actually looking for that solution back then for my companies, it didn't exist. Fast forward, I was like, you know what, let's just go build it had ourselves. You had you done outsourcing from those other companies? Yeah, so, so at like, Shippo, we- seen it working? Yeah, we, we actually hired a few developers at Endella. And I remember thinking, Endella is a company, they raise like gobs of money and they were based in Africa. And I was like, this is amazing, this is incredible. The talent was awesome, but the problem was the time zone change. We had to wait 12 hours to be able to communicate with our team, so it's like anytime we wanted to get solution, we had to wait the next day and wait the next day. And we didn't want them working our hours because that's a terrible quality of life. And so I was like, I wish there was an Andela for Latin America, and there wasn't. Wow. Well, outsourcing, is on the one hand nothing new yeah. it's been happening for a super long time outsourcing to latin america is you know an upward trend but like you didn't invent that like for the reason all the reasons you said like same time zone big benefits there um seems like a crowded marketplace like it seems you're not like coming in you know going going and, and it was kind of like a lot of the pitches that we heard Earlier today, I said to them, okay, well, this is great. That sounds cool, but I've heard this before. Why you? Like, why are you going to be successful? So, like, why why you? Why howdy? And why were you able to get, get into Y Combinator? Why were you able to go raise so much money, tens of millions of dollars? Why, why are you think you can maybe go public someday with this business that lots of other people do outsourcing? Yeah, I mean, solve that problem at the biggest level, right? I know it's 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 a, it's a great question. I I started very <laughs> I'm I almost did the opposite of probably what <laughs> you guys are going to be told here. I started very small with I just had this problem myself, and I wanted to help the companies I was working at. 
create a solution for them. I tried to find the solution. It, it didn't exist in the way that we as a small tech company wanted it to exist. What do I mean by that? Tons of outsourcing companies, tons of outsourcing companies all over the world, tons of product development companies. I, I even went down, I went to five different countries down in South America meeting with companies. Hey, would you be able to work with this, work in this way? And there was two main things that were happening at the time. The first one was outsource product development. No tech company is going to want to throw their product over the fence and say, hey, I'm going to give you the specs, you design it. So that was the first one. So that solution was out. The second one was more of like a staff augmentation type model. But general staff augmentation type models hire junior level employees that are going to do more of the like QA or CRUD or, or the lower level work because that's all they can attract. And so I was like, well, no, no, tech companies want product-oriented, holistic-minded developers that have 10 years experience, five years experience, that know what they're doing, that can come and ask the right questions and be like a core part of the team. Where, where are those companies that hire those individuals? Well, those individuals are working for the local unicorn companies. They're working for the local like tech stars. But what's better than a local tech star? A Silicon Valley tech star. And so I knew that if I could connect top talent to these Silicon Valley companies, I could get the top talent. However, I couldn't get these great companies unless I had the top talent. So it was like this chicken and egg problem. It's a marketplace. It was a marketplace. So the very this is a very long-winded answer to your question. This is, no, because this is good. It's great. So I went down there, and I just started meeting people the same way I got my first job in Capital Factory is the same way I got my first developer in South America. I took people to coffee. I started throwing events. I started doing meetups. I started connecting. I started to understand who are the local tech leaders, what do they want, what's important in these communities, and then I built around that. And so I started with one, then I got two, and I worked with one company. And what ended up happening was I built this whole business idea where the developer comes first. So what do you as the developer need in Montevideo? Do you want a community? Do you want mentorship? Do you want access to top tech leaders that can come and give you talks? Can they go and inspire you and connect you? And so what I really did is I started with one, I built a team around that individual, and then I expanded that model based solely on the simplicity of like, how, does, how do I as one individual make one individual happy? And then what ended up happening was the companies here in the US were so impressed by the caliper of individuals we were able to get that they started referring their friends to me. And then on both sides of the equation, we got this network effect where great engineers know other great engineers, and so they were referring us because we were treating them like any Silicon Valley company here would be treating them. And of course, great tech companies that have a solution to their problem, they're telling other great tech companies, oh my gosh, you gotta use Howdy, you have to use Howdy, you have to use Howdy. And so it just exploded in that way. And people always ask me, well, what makes you different? What is, what is your moat? What is your thing that you do that separates you, that differentiates you, that blah, blah, blah? And the way I always answer that is I say, we don't have one moat. We've built a bunch of micro moats because I actually designed the solution with one person in mind. Not necessarily with me being this billionaire that's got this billion dollar idea. No, I actually am thinking about the solution in a very, very narrow way. How do I make that one person have the best experience at this company here and then give him all the tools so not only he stays with us for a year, he stays with us for the rest of his life. And the interesting like full circle moment is the very first person I hired back in 2018, is still employed with us. And he was just here in Austin with me, and we were grabbing a drink at a bar, just like reminiscing on how like it all started from just like that one meeting. So your competitive advantage is basically being the best place to work in this Latin American company, country. Yeah, that's Hey, of all the like places you could go get a job, everyone's trying to save money by hiring people here. We're still... Probably you're not paying them U.S. wages. Otherwise, they wouldn't be saving money. They must be pay must be making something less. But they're getting paid something competitive and getting like these other benefits to, that really make them feel like they're part of something. And wow, this is the best job in town I could have. Yeah, exactly. We pay we pay them above market, but we don't pay them U.S. market. And and in the U.S. too, we'll tell people we're not going to be the, your cheapest solution, but you're going to get access to the best individuals. Yeah.
But yes, it is, it is because of all of the other things. Because what we realize is most people, it's not a monetary play. Once you cover the dream of what they want to make, everything else is like the little things. What's important to them? Is it growth? Is it growth in terms of like personal growth? Is it educational growth? Is it, oh, we're doing things to help with families. We're doing things to help with children. What is, what is important to the individual is important to us. So you got into Y Combinator, so I'm super competitive, it, without question, if you're going to do an accelerator, if they even want to call it that, it, the best one to, to go do and be part of, and, and something that I certainly highly recommend to anybody that has the opportunity to be part of it. Your husband, Lloyd, had also been through Y Combinator, and that was actually right at the time that I had met him. He was just getting out of it, and, and he, for a while before then he became the old guy he was like the guy in town like if you wanted to get into y combinator go talk to lloyd like he could like give you some advice and tell you who to go talk to so you had like i'm not saying you didn't get in on your own but like you did have this like pretty good advantage of like he was already the guy i would have sent anybody to to go ask how do you get into yc so you've got all the secrets because you're married to him <laughs> and, uh, and you did it yourself so what what's what's your advice for somebody from austin from texas that's interested in Y Combinator, one, how do they even know, is this even, should I even do it? Is this even worth my time? Do I have any chance of getting in? And then two, how, what gives them the best chances of success? So I agree. If you guys want to apply to Y Combinator, you should definitely talk to my husband because he is very good at the YC application. But there's, there's two things that you need to think of when you're thinking of applying for YC is they are reading thousands and thousands and thousands. I, I can't even, I, I could quantify the number. I just don't know it off the top of my head. But you have, when you're writing your application, your application can't just answer the questions. It has to tell a compelling story. So you have to make sure that what we do, the thing he always says to do is answer all the questions, pull out the questions, put it in a Google Doc, answer all the questions. Now take all those answers out and then put it all together. Do those answers separate from the questions tell a story? And is that story compelling? And then go tell that story to your mom. Does your mom like it? Because if your mom doesn't like it, that's, that's, that's your first. <laughs> that's, it's a really she, bad sign. It's a very bad sign. Your mom's going to love everything, right? Um, but that really helped me solidify what it is we were doing, we were trying to do, and, and then our proof points there. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, if you apply and you don't get an interview, or even if you get an interview and you're still working on the business, apply again. We applied the first year. We didn't even get an interview. We applied the second year. We got an interview. We got in. And the nice thing is, I pulled up the first application that we, writ we, had, we had written, and it told a very good story. And then the second application was pretty much the exact same story. We didn't change much. But the numbers were different, and the traction was different, and that was when they talked to us. And so, and I and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they will have your previous applications there. And so, a lot of times, they might even be testing you: Are you serious? Are you still doing this? Is this important to you? So, if you can show, hey, six months later, not only are we still doing it, we're more convicted than ever, and look at the traction we've we've gotten. They also might have an that will give you a leg up in terms of like them wanting to talk to you. So in addition to getting into one of the most prestigious accelerator communities, you've also raised quite a bit of capital, venture capital. And it's a, something that any company would be super proud of. There's probably not that, not that many women that have raised as much venture capital as you have. I know. I think it's, it, 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 is, it is a sub 1% amount. It's, it's crazy low. I bet. So, wow. Pretty impressive right there as well. What... Tell us about your experience raising venture capital. How did you go? For, is, how much did YC play into that? Did, that? did that make a difference? And then, and then when you got from the out of the YC excitement and buzz, and then you're like now raising your next round of capital, and, and there's another zero or two, and it's, it's a much bigger round of funding. What made the difference to allow you to paint that? How, how could you convince them to give you that much money? So I learned this in sales. You have to create urgency, even if there is no urgency, and there has to be a deadline. 
and you have to be okay with sticking to it. And it's like this, it's this scarcity mindset somewhere, either you or them. And so I went into raising, we did a seed round. We ended up doing 2.9 million on 20 pre, so 23 million after. Now I will say that YC really helped a lot with, they, they manufacture urgency by doing demo day. So they do this thing where you're part of this three month program and then at the end of it they do a demo day where you get to go and pitch in front of 5,000 investors and during that pitch then these investors get to say yes I want to meet with you at the end of demo day we had 93 investors asking to meet with us which was like an insane amount of investors prior to YC granted I wasn't necessarily trying to fundraise any but I didn't have any investors reach out there are just founders out there that you'll meet well they'll be like oh yeah this investor wants to talk to me and this no I didn't I wasn't that darling tech sweetheart where every investor was like let me talk to you it wasn't like that I only got people interested in me as part of this YC component but a lot of other uh, YC companies that I was in my class with they had a hard time raising and they had the same number of investors interested in meeting with them and the most important thing to do is just show some sort of traction with anything. And so I went into it thinking, well, hey, I've got something more important than what you can give me. What I have is equity in my company. And your money to me is less valuable than my equity to me. And so if, if you go into a conversation with having something of more value than what you can give them, you're not afraid to walk away. You're not afraid of turning down a bad deal. But if you want that money more than you want your equity, you are going to give up a whole bunch. And I think that level of confidence when you're having that conversation carry through because they can naturally read if someone is desperate for something or if somebody wants something. Trust me, they're a lot better at it. Like these investors have met with thousands. I don't know how many how many pitches do you get all the time, right? You can you can smell it from a mile away. So when you go into a conversation you have to think through they will they will they will smell it on you so you have to find more value than what they can give you at least in these conversations from my standpoint so that's what we did for the seed it ended up being very successful and then the most important thing is just execution we put our heads down investors were trying to talk to us for the next year thereafter we didn't talk to anybody and I said it more, and I wasn't never to be rude, just, hey, really focused on the business. When we're, when we're interested in fundraising, we'll reach out. We're not sure if we're going to do it again. And so I carried a list of, like, all the people that had reached out to me. And then when we peaked up and we're like, okay, we're getting traction. This is going very quickly. This is moving. Business is going really well. And at the time, there was a signal in the economy that the economy was imploding, and so I looked at my co-founder and I was like, hey, do you want to do a capital raise so that we can build some money in our war chest just to be safe? And he was like, yeah, it might not be a bad idea. Let's, let's do it. And so all I did was just reach out to the people that had asked to talk to me to begin with. And I said, hey, we're, we're flirting with the idea of potentially doing another raise. And I would go to those conversations. But the other thing is like I had my series seed investor also say, anytime you want a term sheet, I'll happily give you a term sheet. So I had a couple like aces in these conversations. And so when I started the conversation, I said, look, I've, I already have a term sheet that I can get from my investor. So don't talk to me unless you're serious about doing this. Here's the pitch. Here's the whatever. And of course, again, they want something that other people want. So if you show signal that there is somebody else interested, it also creates that urgency or that scarcity that like, oh no, like I need to get in, I need to get this, I need to get this thing. And I learned it all from sales. So I don't know if that helped answer, but. Yeah, for sure. The other piece of advice is raise when you don't need the money. I know it's hard to say, but it puts you in a position of power much more than if it was something that you were desperate for. So what does that mean, raise when you don't need the money? So if you have any kind of capital prior, which like maybe you do, maybe you don't, but if you have any kind of capital prior and you, and you see like, okay, my burn rate's going to be like 24 months, it might make sense to raise money at month eight, knowing that you have a long runway ahead so you won't be so desperate to do it at that point. What we did though was we just built a profitable business from the beginning knowing that if our business was profitable, because a lot of times businesses chase users or chase, they chase other metrics 
and we were chasing profitability. So that was the first decision that we made was like, hey, we don't need to be the biggest company. We don't need to be the best company. We just need to make money. Turns out, once we started making money, then we were able to get more customers and more customers. And then it ended up creating this advantage where it's, look, we can take your money or we could just keep making our own. So, Great. Right, well, let's open it up to the students and see if all you all have any questions. Who wants to go first? Yeah, it seems like one of your biggest skills as well was like being able to network. Can you explain like the one-on-one -on -one interactions, like how you got these people to be have trust in you and how you were able to make them be a long-time investor? With the investors or with the with the who? The, the uh, customers, the engineers? I say the investor part first, basically. I think those are the people who helped you finance everything. So well, I, I technically started the company myself with my I bootstrapped it. So to kind of step it step it back. I bootstrapped the company until I did YC. So there was about two years prior to that. As far as getting the investors comfortable with me or networking, I, I, I feel like my networking for investors wasn't as strong as my networking in other things. It was more like I met one or two investors and then I had very good conversations with them and I met a couple other investors and I didn't have as good of a relationship in the first conversation. And so what I started to realize is that some people I really vibe with right off the bat and others I don't. And once I met another person, like the fifth conversation I had that I really vibed with, I was like, hey, you know what? I really enjoyed this conversation. This has been really easy. Do you know other investors like you that might be interested in meeting me? I would love to just expand the people that I know and the people, would you mind like setting an introduction? And so even just making that ask, but usually if there's friction in the conversation or, or friction, they're gonna feel it too. And if it's an easy conversation, they're gonna feel it. So if it's easy, that's when you can make the ask, hey, we, we seem to get on, we seem to see eye to eye. Do you know other people like you? And that's, that's one way. Um, in your podcast, you briefly talked about how the entire um, three months of YC, they just taught developers how to become good salespeople. Yeah. Could you give us one tip? If you're pre-product, how can you be a good salesperson for your product? And how would that differ if you already have an ongoing product? I love this question. So the, the thing that they, and to give a little bit more color to that, was a lot of times uh, developers will make the mistake of hiring a salesperson. And this salesperson is supposed to be this magical unicorn that then makes sales happen. But that never happens. So what they're saying is nobody knows the solution better than you because you're developing the solution in your mind as you're going. How do you develop that? How do you get customers? Well, the easiest way to do it is do what I would call market research. Just reach out to people that you may think might be a customer and say, hey, I'm building a product. I'm doing a little bit of customer research or market research or whatever it is you want to call it. Can I ask you some questions? Would you be willing to give me five minutes of your time? I'd really appreciate it. And then like, you know, give like, I'm a, I'm a college student building this thing, blah, blah, blah. More often than not, people will actually say yes. But usually if you use this, I always use this number of 100. If I want to get one person to talk to me, I have to ask 100 people. And so if I just make it this simple numerical equation of, okay, if I want to talk to 40 people, we'll multiply that, but I've got to ask 4,000 people. And and that's it. It's as simple as that. And I think a lot of times, too, non-salespeople non will go into it and be like, well, I asked 10 people and no one wanted to talk to me. Well, yeah, you didn't ask enough people. That's a, It's as simple as that. Go ask Go ask 90 more, and then you've got one person. And so I think there is this idea that like you get rejection early on, and then you're like, oh, this is bad, or this is dumb, or I shouldn't do this, or this proves it. And it's, no, no, it doesn't prove anything. You just haven't, you haven't asked enough. So this idea of you just haven't asked enough, like fundraising, really, you just need one person to say yes. Especially like a lot of times like that, that one lead investor that then once you have the lead, suddenly the rest of them become easy. And it might take 50 or 100 conversations to get to that one lead investor. And the rest of them all can be no, 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 until you get this one that says yes. And then suddenly everything's different. I mean, look at Canva. Canva is probably a product you guys are all very familiar with. I think she said she did like close to 500 pitches before she even got one person interested. And if and that goes to a bigger problem of like the people that are investing and 
all that jazz. But still, maybe it's not necessarily you. It's just you're not talking to the right investors. There's thousands of investors. So what is, we'll talk more about what the right investors are. What's that mean? What kind of different kinds of investors? How do you find the right investors? So it's within... <laughs> so there, there, there are people that when you have a conversation with them, it shouldn't be a pitch. It should be a conversation. The right investor is usually someone that understands what you're doing and what lane that you're in and usually will ask the right questions or they'll give you the right objections. If you are someone that like clearly doesn't understand or is asking questions, why are they even asking that question? It may be a signal that you're not communicating, but it could also just mean like they don't get it. And that's okay. Pay for them not to get it. It's okay for them not to understand your industry or understand your solution or what it is that you're trying to do. And a lot of times investors will have chips on their shoulders or they'll have like biases or they'll have things where it's like, oh, I, what were you saying? Oh, the parking lot idea. Oh, I've seen this. Yes, like 20 years ago, there was like a bunch of these ideas because Airbnb came out. It was like so hot. And so then literally the next year, everyone was like, I'm the Airbnb for this. I'm the Airbnb for this. I'm the Airbnb for that. And so if an investor invented in the Airbnb for that and you talk to them, they're going to be super negative when they talk to you. But if you happen to get someone that doesn't necessarily have that experience, they might be more excited. So I think within the first five minutes, you'll be able to gauge very quickly if someone, one, understands your industry, what it is you're trying to do, and if they're optimistic or they're negative about it. If all those three things are positive, then that's the right investor. If there's any kind of negativity there, there's no reason to waste your time, I would think, in terms of fighting them. A lot of times when people, I, ha I had a big time Austin investor before we, I had, it's funny, funny story. I had my term sheet for $18 million on a $100 million valuation. I had my investors lined up and at a, out of a courtesy to this person, I took the meeting and he just ragged on me the whole time. And he's, okay, so what's your round? Give me the details. And I was like, oh, the round's pretty much closed. I just took this meeting as a favor. And then like in that moment, he was like, well, can I get in? It's no, screw you. You just like, you just like, like ragged on me I'm not gonna so you also don't want those investors either yeah what about the just the fact that there are different investors looking for different things it's like there's real estate investors there's startup investors there's late stage investors early stage investors like how do you even is there any kind of and any tips on navigating that how do you end up in front of the right people so you're not just pitching the wrong people that don't get it? Yeah, I'm terrible at that. I just, I was just pitching everyone. <laughs> but yes, no, there is, there is, the best thing you can do is go to their website, read about their fund, read about their mission, but I would say look at the investments that they do. Usually investors will have a thesis of what they invest in and why. And if you fill in the what and the why, it is going to be a good conversation for the both of you. If you're trying to narrow it in, I, I wouldn't. But the biggest indicator of what they do is look at the previous companies that they recently invested in. That would be the biggest signal. So particularly with professional investors, with VCs, like the fund has a thesis. We're a climate fund. We invest in things that help do work, work with climate. We're a SaaS software fund. We work with SaaS stuff. We're, in, we're an international fund that focuses on companies you know, bridging stuff you know between the countries right there's going to be yes exactly think different focuses maybe more than one but yeah even down anything. to we invest in female founders or we invest in consumer products or they'll they can be very specific or, or broader so you mentioned going to latin american countries and kind of building a new community there and networking there how did you go about doing that in a brand new place maybe you've never been there and what advice do you have for networking in general? So I, <laughs> I just went. I just went. So you just go because there's so much work you can do here and so much research. Do enough at least. But when you get there and you meet people and you talk to people, generally there will be someone that's pointing you in the right direction. So, for example, I went down to Montevideo. I met one person who then introduced me to another person who, and so it like spirals off. And usually you have a coffee or you like thank them for their time, 
what we would do is we would pay for that. Hey, let me take you out to lunch, or let me ask you questions, or, or let me just come to your office and, and, and get a tour. A lot of times I just called businesses that I knew were doing something similar just to say, hey, I want to come look at what it is that you guys are doing, how you're doing it, and see if this is something that we'd be interested in doing it. And they were so gracious and helpful. And when you get there and you learn, they usually will say, oh, you should also talk to my friend, or you should also do that. It's not the same if you're calling from here or emailing from here than just actually being in location, showing up, asking questions in person. People are way more helpful. So my advice for networking is I think sometimes we are too much behind our phone, too much behind our computers, and it gets a little intimidating to actually just show up. But, but just show up. They have tons of meetups, tons of, of events in every city in the world. So go to one. Go to, go to one meetup, look at it in advance, Talk to one person, it's going to lead you to another person, another person. You mentioned that you applied to YC like before your company had traction. Would you generally recommend like doing that as that might increase your chances the second time around when you apply? Yeah, so I we had a little bit of traction the first time. We had a lot more the second time. I knew we actually, by the time we got into YC, we had the most traction I think of every company I asked what they were doing, where they were at, we were much farther along. Most companies were pre-product market fit. We were right, we were finding our product market fit in that moment. And I would say any stage, apply at any stage because they, like if, if your application is compelling enough, even in this last batch, there was a story about these three founders that they're like, we hate your business. We hate everything you're doing here but you are an amazing founder team, so we're going to accept you. And they accepted the founder team. And then I think, I, I don't remember exactly, but they recently went through this like 50 million Series B, and they decided on what their business was going to be in YC. And then now it's like this like amazing success story. So I would encourage anyone to apply to YC at any time, but just make sure that, again, it's a compelling story, whatever you say, or whatever it is that you're doing. So in the podcast, you mentioned that sometimes people have a bad experience with sales representatives because they're trying to force the wrong product market fit, if that's correct. And so I'm wondering what we should be looking for as we're trying to pitch ideas to customers to determine if it is the right product market fit. And if maybe, because I would, I would assume in some cases it might be the right fit, but we're not communicating it the right way. In other cases, it might just not be the right fit. So how do we differentiate that? I think the easiest way is just how much friction do you have? So when you're asking questions about their problems, what it is that they have, and then if your product is the solution to their problems, then it should be a simple yes, awesome, how do I sign up, where do I start, let's go. And so if, it, if they are not at a place where they're saying, wow, this is awesome, thank you so much, then you don't have product market fit because you're not giving them a solution to their problem. And so it might not, it, it, it might be for various reasons. It could be you didn't present it correctly. It could be you didn't actually hear what their true pain is. There's a million different reasons why. I would say that in my experience, most people are too quick to want to give the solution before really diving into understanding what is the real pain, what is the real problem that they're suffering, because they're so excited to talk about themselves. The more you hear about them, the easier it is to position what it is that you're doing. I think also when people hear product market fit, a lot of times they're first thinking about selling it. I get people to buy it. But real product market fit is people using it and really benefiting from it. And that's completing the circle. That's like they bought it and they're gonna keep buying it. They're yes. gonna buy it again. And there's a company that I have, you know, have an example have in mind where they're, they've sold a whole bunch of these products at a $150,000 price point and like dozens of them, but very few of the companies renew and very few of them, uh, uh, yeah, they, they, yeah, it, it's, it's kind of like they get they get new new ones, but like they, they don't have a really high renewal rate, and that, and there's a lot of people interested in it, but not really a high close rate, and so it's kind of like there's something math missing in the product market fit. Like it's there, it's it's working, they're selling some of it, but it's not not really product market fit. 
Yeah, it's, it's great that you say that because we have a weekly sales cycle. What I mean by that is we get paid every week for the service that we provide, and they can actually stop at any week, at any week. And that's by design because we want to get fast signal of what we do is if it's working for people, if it's not working for people. And that's terrifying for a lot of companies because a lot of companies will be like, oh, I'm spending all this money to get this person or company started. I'm going to lock them into a 12-month contract or I'm going to lock them in into however many years. And then you get all these wrong signals of success because you're like, look at all these contracts I got signed. Woohoo! And no, you were just good at making the first sale. But it doesn't mean that your solution actually makes people happy. It's on the renewals that makes that signals if your product is working or not. So I have two more questions. We'll go back and forth a little bit between the students as well. But you know, another thing about your business model that I find to be interesting or unique is that most it's a very popular trend these days yeah. is to build a network type business like yours with effectively no overhead. We don't act like Uber, like we don't, it's the biggest car company in the world that doesn't own any cars or actually have any employees or do anything. Or Airbnb is like the biggest hotel chain and they don't have any hotel rooms or whatever else, right? And there are, I would expect to hear a lot of pitches for services like yours that said, but we don't actually have any employees or anything like that. Yeah. We're really just a network. And yeah. so if somebody cancels on us next week, it's not our problem, like we shit rolls downhill thing. And that's not how your company works, is it? So why is, that, why is that different? And why, even though that's such a big trend, is that different for you and not, not a big risk? So for us, we identified early on that the most valuable thing that we could have is incredible teammates, incredible developers for partners. And we quantified that. We said, okay, actually, it costs us $4,233 for every single person that we hire. I'm sure actually that number is a lot higher now. So if that person gets terminated, is it more advantageous for me to keep paying their salary and potentially place them at a new company? Or is it more advantageous to fire them and then spend another $4,233 to find another person just like them, when in reality, I've built so much equity with this person, and I can count on them, and I trust them, and I know them. So that was like a little bit change of that model of this like marketing shit rolls downhill thing, where it's like, no, no, you actually, if you are, quote unquote, how do you prove, if you're good enough to be a part of one tech company, you're good enough probably to be a part of many others. And so we tell our developers, too, if you get hired with Howdy and you have the Howdy seal of approval, like you don't have to worry about a job unless you do something that's going to get you really fired from it. And so we actually just spend the sales money on the commercial side, the demand side, to generate a new opportunity from them and rather than terminating them as well because it, it just makes more sense to us. So from your experience in sales, can you give any advice on the, for students who struggle with pitching their ideas both to the customers and potential teams they want to work with, especially if that student struggles with communication skills? <laughs> I would use some sort of, if you can, find a free one. I know there's a bunch, like AI-type recorders, because I think you would be surprised at how much you're talking versus how much they're talking. In any good sales conversation, they should be talking 75% of the time at least to your 25%. Minimum expectation is 50-50. But really, if you're really trying to understand their pain, their problem, they're the ones speaking more than you. And, and it's really just you asking the questions, them giving the long-winded answers, you asking follow-up questions, them giving answers, follow-up, 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 get as much information. And then at the very end, here's my solution. Shouldn't take more than 25% of the talking space. So try and measure it if you can or record it yourself and then listen back and, and the recording might tell you like how, what it, percentage you talked versus yeah else. the recording will i don't know what tool is free but we use gong we pay for that but there i know there's What's some free ones out there gong 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 yeah but it it records you it's like a sales tool it's a sales tool it records trend. your sales calls and gives you stats on them yep yeah i look at it i don't even have to look at the conversation i just look at how much howdy's talking versus them i'm like guys come on what are you doing <laughs> like it's not about us it's about them Wow, I feel like I should have that on all the time. <laughs> if my memory serves me correctly, and it, it might not be, you guys are aiming to go public? That is the goal, yeah. Okay. Not tomorrow, but... There's not any kind of official announcement. Yeah, no. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> of course, yeah. What is the 
process like that, the process for that look like? Or and like, what do you have to be thinking about now if yeah. that's something you're thinking about in the future? I was going to say the process. I don't know. Let's see when we get there. But no, we I built out the business plan to take us to the amount of money I deemed would be a publicly traded company worth type business. So, so you it, have a financial plan that gets you to... Yes, it's, well... 100 million in revenue would be my guess. The 500. Number. 500 million. Yeah. 500 million top line, 209 gross profit, and 100,000 to the bank. Or 100 million to the bank, sorry. That's the... That's wow. The Glad we invested. Yeah. So, and, and it's a certain number, it's a certain KPI, like how many teammates do we need at partner companies? Um, the number is uh, 4,633. So how long will that take? Well, in 2021, it would have been five years. Things have slowed down a little bit. Um, it's about seven years, probably. Seven, years. seven, seven to ten, maybe, depending. But things are turning. Yeah. In a good yeah. way again. You always—they say you always overestimate what you'll get done in one year and underestimate what you'll get done in ten years. It's true. Gosh, we started five years ago. We just had our five-year anniversary, and it's mind-blowing to see just how much is like where we are right now. But I actually looked at a presentation I made in 2019 to the team. I was like, oh my God, I was ridiculous thinking I was going to achieve all of that in 2020. I also wasn't anticipating COVID, but here we are. Yeah. yeah in the bootstrap phase, uh, what did, like, how did you build your minimum viable product? What's the, what's the steps you did leading up to it? Oh gosh, it was very painful. <laughs> I started, I was, I am risk adverse just I'm, I'm not risk adverse when it comes to making decisions in the business. I'm risk adverse when it comes to my own personal finances. Um, and so what I wanted to do was make sure that I had enough money in the bank to at least try this idea for 18 months. So what did I do personally? I saved up enough money that I could live off of for the next 18 months so that I could be heads down focused on this business without having to worry about like how I was going to feed myself. So that was the first important thing for me. Can I feed myself? great, now that I can, now I can focus 100%. I didn't have to pay myself with the business. I didn't have to do any of that stuff. I used the money, I went down. I found the first person that I then said, okay, I've got this job offer for, for you, but I'm not gonna sign it yet because I need to go and I need to now sell you because he, he was my first developer that I was hiring for a team in the US, but I didn't have a team in the US for him. He was just the first person that I was like, we're gonna do this together. And he was still working. I came back to the US and I just talked to my network. Hey, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm experimenting with. Do you want to do this with me? This is what the cost structure is going to look like. And I got a couple people to say, yeah, let's work on it. And it was just, again, it was like week to week, month to month in terms of like when we were setting, setting this up. I had to open up a foreign entity in Uruguay, use the funds for that, learn about FX exchange, learn about all these different things and learn about foreign tax law. And I don't even know the US tax law, let alone like Uruguayan tax law, but I had to figure it out. And so it was, it started to move along and it was working because I put a little bit of a spread and I was very transparent with everyone. I was like, look, I'm not making any money on this. I'm just trying to prove that this works, that you can hire a team in Uruguay and have them be just as effective as your team in the US. And that sounds very trivial right now, but I promise you in 2018, people were not hiring remotely. They just were not. They were, like, you had to be in office if you wanted to be hired. And so that was the hypothesis. Do they have to be in office? No, I don't think they have to be in office. So they were trying it. We were moving forward. And then fast forward six months, I got hit with a $40,000 tax bill. And I was like, why do I have this $40,000 tax bill from this Uruguayan government? Am I going to go to jail? What is happening? What's going on? And it turns out that in Uruguay in June, they get this half-month salary that's just extra to the salary that they're already making, and they get it again in December. But no one told me that. So when I was promising these guys salaries, they were also anticipating all of these extra salaries. I also didn't write that into the commercial contracts here into the US. So when I went to those companies to say, hey, surprise, surprise tax bill for all of us, the funny thing was, the joke was on me. They're like, well, you didn't tell me about that, so you have to pay that. So I had to pay that, and that was, and that made my runway way shorter and way scarier because I wasn't anticipating any of that stuff. The beautiful thing, though, about failing 
is you learn. And what you do is you change your contracts, you change your languages, you change the things you do, because when you have failure, you don't want to fail again. And so very quickly, there was a clause in our contract, hey, any kind of like additional taxes is on you or any kind of, and it's helped us now in the future, but it was very painful in the morning, so in the moment. So how did I bootstrap it? I saved up a bunch of money and then I had an anticipation of what life was gonna be and then it was absolutely not that and it was hell. <laughs> So. But actually, nobody gave you some big grant. Nobody gave you a big bunch of funding to go do this. You hustled for years. You built up the experience. You built up the network. You saved up money so that you were in a position to go have some runway to go yeah. do it. Yeah, I worked. I was I was 30. How old am I? 37. I was 32 when I started this business. I spent 12 years working. I put away a little bit of money every single month, and it amounted to $100,000. Well, it was $150,000 by the time I got here. It was, it was not... I made a lot of money and I saved that money. It was saving as much money as I can when I was making not a lot of money, which I highly encourage everyone to do. All right, so my last big question for you, pretty much every way you could measure, you are exceptional by the definition of that word. You, you taught your, you effectively worked your way up through being a great salesperson. You were able to become a founder and a female founder. You were able to get into Y Combinator. You were able to raise tens of millions of dollars in funding. You've accomplished so many different things. Um, and all those things by themselves would be super impressive if you were just anybody. Um, doing it, happening to be a female, makes all of it even more, the odds even way more against you, um, even more impressive. And now you're a mom, too. So how, how, how does that all play into this? How do you, how, are you, do you have a superwoman cape? Underneath there, or like, how, how do you, how do you, how do you balance all those different things with with life and being an entrepreneur and being a mom and and that? So I was I was taught a very very important lesson when I was younger, and that is the world isn't fair and everything's going to be hard and it's going to be especially hard for you. It's just how you react to it is the only option that you have. So is your is your reaction going to be, oh, woe is me, this is hard, or are you going to try and find the positive in all the solution? Or are you going to try and find the solution in all that solution? So that's the first one, is that I think just having a solutions-oriented mindset with the expectation that everything's going to be shit allows you to then think everything's awesome because most often than not, things are harder than you expect it to be. Things are more difficult and things are going to be unfair and, and life is going to come at you whether you expect it or not. Having children actually was one of the better things. It is arguably the best thing that's ever happened to me. But as it relates from a financial business perspective, it was one of the unforeseen better things that happened to me because I think for me, I was such a people pleaser that I would always bend over backwards and I would say, yes, I'm going to do this. Or I would commit to things and I would agree to things and I would fly last minute to South America because there was a problem and I'd be there. And having kids made me say no. And I could only say yes to absolutely the most important thing. Even coming and doing a talk like this, it sounds silly, it's four to six, but our childcare, it's done at five. So what do I do from five to six? Well, I have to go out of the way. But something like this is really important to me. And so I only say yes to the most important things because I have a very narrow window of when I can do things. And if it's outside that window, it, it has to be important. And so it gave me the structure to be able to only do the most important things. And the biggest areas of growth with my company were in the moments after I had my children. So I would say like advice for, for younger folks that don't have that, just ask yourself, how important is it? Don't be like me, don't, don't waste 12 years saying yes to so many people. <laughs> just, it's just a waste of your time, a lot of the time. Awesome. Well. That's a great point, I think, to end on, which is thanking you for spending your very valuable time with us as already having a million. One of the things we heard from Chris Himes, the CEO of Indeed, is when you're a CEO, your, your day is never done. There's never, okay, I've, I've completed all the things I need to do. I have nothing left. There's nothing else I could do today. Like, no, there's an endless list of things you could go do uh, that could make the company better or more likely to be successful or could help. And you have an endless to-do list of things to review and people that think want things from you. And then you get that at home, right? And uh, in, in spite of all of that, you're, you're here with us today. So we, re we really appreciate you doing that. Jacqueline also 
last semester, which I, I was so Im- impressed and 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 appreciative of, was is a, a mentor in our Longhorn Startup Lab. So she came in every week and met with students, talking about what a what a big commitment that was, and really helped some 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 specific students to push their businesses forward. So it was really really lucky for to have, for them to have her advice. So thank you again for that. And thank all of you guys. And that'll wrap us up for our podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out CapitalFactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible. And special thanks to Aaron Handworker, who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.